0: Hello and welcome back to Stories from the Forum. My name is Melissa and every week I take a different perspective of That's Right, the Forum here in Los Angeles, California. This week is Michelle Obama. I was lucky enough to grab a seat and thank you Sandman of the Forum who nicely hooked up my phone and then I retrieved it after. Um, to this wonderful event of Michelle Obama's book Becoming, which is filled with so many good stories and so much laughter. And even as a registered Republican, I respect her very much. So here, take a listen. Indulge
1: in outrage and held this space around you. Um that I mean you're and I, I talked,
0: right before this tour started, I had sort of a panic attack uh, just about my life.
1: And I called- Hold on, on. we gotta yes. stop there. <laughs> hold on, <laughs> hold on. <laughs> if Michelle Obama is having panic attack, we need to talk about them. <laughs> because we identify, and so can you just unpack that a little bit? Okay, well let's just think
0: about this. All right, I'm still Michelle Robinson. Yeah. All right. The forum is filled up, and my mother is the kind of person, wait here, y'all, but my mother is the kind of person who says, why are all these people here? And I'm like, I don't know, Mom. I I, I I agree. I mean, she's like, who are they coming to see? And it's like, Mom, I am Michelle Obama. She's like, yeah, but I don't know. Are they coming to see? Is there is there music? Like, is there a band? my head every now and then, and I start thinking, yeah, who do I think I am, like, doing this big tour, I mean, what if it's all just a bad book, you know, I have mean, those those times, so I was sort of having a little panic attack, and Brock had to sit me down and say, the book is great, you're going to be great, you're fabulous, he's so sweet, <laughs> and I called my brother because I was having all these emotions, because I... I think because because I'm like my mother, you just sort of downplay everything. You don't ride the highs too high, you don't ride the lows too low. And that's how she parented us. Like Leah said in the clip, all throughout the campaign, all this that we were doing, I was so busy trying to let the girls know that this is not a big deal. And you have to go to school and you have to behave yourselves and not act like you are not special. Just keep it going. And they're like, Dad, you know, there are people crying. Mom says this wasn't a big (laughs) deal. That's like my mother, you know. So I feel like I spent eight years just trying to say, this is, you know, we go to parent-teacher conferences and there'd be swipe guys on top of the roof, you know, security. And I tell the kids, it's normal, just go to school. <laughs> and I, and I'm, I, I, I'm living like that. So the weekend before we started, I had a panic attack. It's like this has all been a big deal, and I didn't realize. It. <laughs> And that's what she's been in our lives. She's been that sort of constant. When we had trouble, she was just sort of always a silent, effective advocate. So I I tell a story about um, how our neighborhood started to climb, uh, uh, our our neighborhood in South Shore, because when we moved into our neighborhood, we moved there to move into a better community. Um, And it was diverse. Uh, There were all kinds of I had friends that were were white and Asian, and it was a very mixed middle to upper middle class community. And you can see it in our school pictures, I put our, my class picture in there, where you see in my kindergarten class, there's all kinds of kids. Uh, by eighth grade, it was all African-American, and what was going on at the time was what was called white flight. Uh, you know, when black families got the wherewithal to be able to better neighborhoods, white families saw people like us and they're like, we got to get out of here and uh, those folks are going to bring our property values down and slowly people started moving into the suburbs and that affected, uh, commercial development, it affected the public schools. And I started seeing that as early as second grade and I went to my second grade class and it was chaos. It was a teacher who was teaching black kids, and she didn't think we deserved it, and I knew it as a second grader. I knew that this wasn't how school was supposed to be, because it had never been that way. And I knew she didn't respect us. That's why I talk about the fact that kids know when they're not being invested. So this notion that you think that you know, not funding schools, and kids not having computers, and they're too young, they know the difference, and I knew it. And I went home and I complained to my mom at lunch, Yeah, because that's what I did. I came home, sat down, rolled out your bologna sandwich, saw some of all my children playing. That's one of the days when you go home for lunch. And we go home for lunch and my mom stayed home and she'd be doing some chore and I'd come home and complain. And the teacher is like, I don't believe it. We didn't have homework. And this is outrageous and I don't think we'll be learning this year. And <laughs> mm, 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 mm. <laughs> I think maybe she just listened to me, but little did I know, she she was an active parent in the PTA. She took herself up to that school. I think she probably cursed out everybody <laughs> at some point. Because what they did with a couple of the brightest kids was that they tested us and we tested our second grade and moved into a better third grade class. Um, but I say all that to say that's who Marian Robinson was. She was a quiet advocate. And she, she didn't want us to think that we could whine to her and just get her to do things, but she knew the difference between whining and, and real distress. My mother had a, a really high emotional, um, EQ. She, she just knew people. And I think I got a lot of that from her, even though she doesn't realize it. So I carry, she doesn't <laughs> accept that. You know? it's like, I I, I I stopped raising you at 10. She says that all the time. I'm like, no, you didn't, mom. Huh? No, no. You were very involved. I didn't have anything to do with you. I don't know where you came from. <laughs> I, I hear that a lot. So that,
1: hopefully that gives you a, a some sense of Of Marion Robinson. It does, and then this also really struck me the idea that we were to transcend, to get ourselves further. They planned for it, they encouraged it. We were expected not just to be smart, but to own our smartness, to inhabit it with pride. And I was so struck by this idea of owning your own smartness and inhabiting it with pride, and what a difference that is. what an incredible thing for a young person, a young girl, a young black girl, to actually have parents that encouraged you to not only be smart, but to own your smartness, and to own that with pride. And I see that in you today, how you own your power with your eye. You don't shrink away from it. And the question I have is, as a kid, was that hard to do? Were the kids around you owning their intelligence with pride, and if they weren't, like, what did it feel like for you out in the world? I know you would go home to your mom and say that, but when you were bumping up against the other kids, what was that like? It, you you had
0: to balance it. Um, I tell the story of, and many uh, folks of color understand this. The sort of the time when I was accused of talking like a white girl. Ooh. Yeah, I want to talk about that. that. Um, I tell that, the, tell that story at that time. Yes. <laughs> and I share that story because that's, that's, what you, that's what sometimes we confront in our own community. Yep. Um, this sort of feeling that if you're too smart, if you raise your hand too much, if you're too focused on school, that, some, that somehow you're not being black, that you're trying to ad- adopt the habits of white folks. Um, and what I sort of recognize is that, that's fear, that's fear of the other, you know, because as you're leaving and and striving for one thing and you come from one kind of community, sometimes it feels like you're leaving your community behind. Sometimes you're, you're, you're not being loyal and I know a lot of kids now. Even today, deal with straddling those two worlds, and I had to learn to straddle because if you were showing off your smartness, you wind up getting in a fight. Um, you, you you had to figure out how to speak many languages, you know. Um, so I, I learned those languages. I learned when I could be smart, when I needed to be quiet, um, and. I think that's one of the things that that allows me to be an effective communicator is because I had to learn how to communicate from a young age, from a young age, in different ways and deal with those nuances. But there are plenty of kids today who, as I talk to them about going to college, you know, a lot of uh, kids in underrepresented communities are torn with what does it mean if they continue to ascend and they leave their family and friends behind, and where do they land? A lot of kids feel like they're they're lost in this gap. Um, and, and they don't Some sometimes they back away from education
1: because of, of the loss that they feel. That, that's the reason I was so struck by that ability to sort of inhabit it um, and what that would mean. And as you were talking, I was, you brought up the cousin that, Said so you talk white, um, which I experienced growing up, and it used to make me doubt that's because Tracy talks like a white girl. <laughs> I talk like a smart girl. <laughs> <I'm trying to laughs> i know you. See? Like, See? That's okay. how <laughs> it yeah. yeah. works. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Try to shish her. Yeah, no, it happens a so lot. It
1: happens a lot. So, and I was thinking about that. When read it, and thinking about the doubt that I had felt when I was accused of that or told that, and I was curious because I remember, when did you become aware that you were black? How do you define blackness? Is there a way to define blackness? And is that even an effective question? (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I'm curious. I know that we're dealing with, like, if someone says you talk white, then that means there's a way you should talk to be black. And
0: so that there's like a whole thing in there. Yeah, that. yeah, no, that, that, that's part of the, you know, that that's part of the reason for the story. For me, you know, I always knew I was black. Yeah, you don't live in Chicago and not know what race you are. Yeah, Chicago makes it very clear. You know, especially in the '70s when it was highly segregated. Yeah. Um, so yes, I knew from a very early age the difference, and I knew that the, uh, that the accusation from the little girl was intended as an insult. Uh, so yeah, race always played a role, and race and identity for me, I always remember it. It wasn't like I, I discovered, oh my god, I didn't realize, it's like, black. It's like, yep, yeah, no, I'm black. Uh,
1: about it. I didn't know. When did you find it? I mean, I was dumb. When did you find it? I, someone said something
0: when they said, Tracy, you're what? <laughs> to Too
1: For you, that kind of you rode through your childhood when I was when I was younger, yeah when you were young. You know, um,
0: yeah, it was interesting. There were I I always gravitated towards the strong characters. So one of my favorite Iron Man. Yeah, well, you know, this is the reflection piece. This is why reflection is good because it, it explained it to yourself. Um, but I love. You know, I thought that chick was so cool. You know, she was, she lived alone. She didn't want to something. You know, she was powerful and fearless. And she was a girl. And it was, it was that was the first sort of um, strong girl character. And I love those books. The other, you know, character that I, I liked, to was Peter Pan. And I didn't identify with Wendy, the girl that needed help and pet flying around. I loved Peter Pan because he and I was kind of a tomboy for a while until I realized that boys existed. Um, but I like I liked the coolness of Peter Pan, his magic, his, you know, so I used to pretend to be Peter Pan. You know, we put the little Disney record on, I'm like... I know. I didn't tell anybody in the neighborhood about that. But I would have been fighting for the rest of the, the summer.
1: But now, so many little kids are going to want to be flying around. With yeah. Peter Pan. I like the idea of,
0: I, I wanted to be the person who was saving you know, I, I like the characters, so I didn't gravitate to the helpless people. You know, I was always the one, I like the characters that were in control.
1: I understand that. Mm. <laughs> I too like being in control. <laughs> I used to line all the dolls up and then make my sister come in and sit with them and teach her class. I love school, so, so <laughs> like being the teacher. That was, that was so good. Was good. Yes. So good, okay. I'm trying to, th- okay, I'm just going to ask this. The apparatus of privilege and connection, what seemed like a network of half hidden ladders and guide ropes that lay suspended overhead, ready to connect some, but not all of us, to the sky, is what you came into contact with when you moved over to Whitney Young. Yeah, Whitney Young was my high school. We have some dolphins in the house. So ex- explain Whitney on the high school that I went to, because
0: this was, one of the first times I um, learned to transition in to to sort of migrate into something else to move out of my comfort zone. Because in Chicago, you grew up in your neighborhood, you went to your neighborhood grammar school, elementary school, you went to your neighborhood high school. Um, And so you live in a a, a small sort of five block radius. Most people grew up that way. Um, When I started high school, uh, Winnie Young was a magnet high school, the first magnet high school that drew kids in from all over the city, we had to test in, um, and I wanted desperately to go to the school, even though it was literally an hour and a half bus ride away from my house, um, because I felt it was going, I knew it was going to be a place where I could be smart out loud. Um, and what other kids, there were going to be all these kids from the city with the same aspirations, and I wasn't didn't have to hide my intelligence. Everybody would want to go to college, uh, but to get there was a was a real journey. And my first and going there exposed me to more than just the neighborhood kids, the kids in my socioeconomic strata. So you go to Young, and this was the first time I had met black rich kids. I didn't know they existed. Yeah, you know, and so there was a whole lexicon of, of, you know, like Jack and Jill. That's like an of the club. Yeah. Yeah. So people belonged to Jack and Jill. I was like, what's that? And I had I had this vision of people with buckets. Going, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, right. Where like, black kids, privileged black kids, could beat each other and they would go skiing. I had never heard, I didn't know black people speak.
2: <laughs> uh, black people, I met black
0: people who lived in downtown in condominiums and whose parents owned companies that I had heard of. This is where I met one of my good friends uh, who was the daughter of Reverend Jesse Jackson. And that's when I got exposed to so much more than what I could have learned in my neighborhood. But I realized that if I had stayed where I was, I wouldn't have even known about these hidden ladders, you know, about these relationships, networking. And you know, I realized networking exists. All these kids kind of knew each other, and here I am walking into Whitney with, with Young from, with an hour and a half bus ride. You know, These are kids who had cars, you know, drove their parents' cars to school. Now these weren't all rich kids, but there were enough of them that I realized that there was this system of relationships
1: I feel like that's one of the things that you have offered as First Lady, a way that you sort of opened up the apparatus of privilege and gave everybody a glimpse at that and access to it in a way that connected humanity um, in a really strong way. But But I want to jump, I'm sorry. No, but but
0: part of the point is, and I try to tell kids this, this is why we have to encourage kids to push outside of their comfort zones. Because... Kids need to know what else is out there to figure yes. out who they can be. Um, kids of all colors, all races, um, and for me, the coming is really kind of a story of migrating through all these different worlds, slowly moving, ascending up and up and up. Um, because it wasn't just so when Young was on all of those tests. Um, so it wasn't that he was Harvard trained or had a future. I didn't. I, I didn't buy into the potential. I bought into who he was.
1: I didn't buy into the potential. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, but you you enter into marriage as individuals, and it works well. You know, where you go off and do your thing, and you come together. Because, you know, if Brock was like in Springfield for a week, then I had to bed to myself, and I had the flicker. you know, and then he'd come home on the weekend, it's like, oh, you know, I miss you, and we go out to dinner, and that was all cool.
1: Can I ask how
0: old you guys were at that point? We were in our, uh, in our, we got married, he was 28, I was 26, I get numbers wrong, um, but in so, area, in our late 20s, early 30s, um, but then we had kids and that's when the tensions start because that's your first joint project together. And it's a really important project. And that's when the inequality starts to rear its ugly head, you know, where all the socialized norms come into play with a man who's very open and equal and believes in me and invests in me, but when it came time to who was making the doctor's appointment, who was scheduling babysitters, who, you know, was making sure that the kids had summer programs, and whose career got altered because he was making his political ascent. Um, That's when the the tension starts. So I'd be at home with the girls, and he would be Springfield, for example, would have to stop at a reception. You know, trying to figure out, do I keep the dinner warm? Do I keep the girls up? They're still young. And my girls had a bedtime. I was like, 7.30, lights out. <laughs> Good night. Um, so he would interrupt the flow. You were one of those moms that played, like, can I get some water? Oh, no, Oh no, 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 no. It's close. Come no closed. <laughs> Seriously, baby, you blow your eyes. <laughs> um, so you're trying to coordinate your life with your kids and keep them on track, and then they want to see Dad, and Dad wants to see him, and he called, and, baby, I'm going to be there. And then 15 minutes will come, about 30, an hour, and with each minute, I'm fuming. I'm just getting more angry angrier, angrier. And I realized what I had to do was ask him, not when you're coming home, but where are you? You know? <laughs> because if you're at the reception and you haven't even gone to get your ballet ticket, your car, you're not gonna make it in 15 minutes. So, and he couldn't figure that out, right? <laughs> So we, that's when we had to sort of learn how to communicate, and I had to learn how to deal with my frustrations, and that's when marriage counseling came in, and and what I learned from it, um, and I, but let's just pause for a second,
1: that's when marriage counseling came in, so in the book, you really do talk about going to marriage counseling, Yes, and I want to say, yay you. Yeah. a tool that is out there, yeah. that has so much stigma on it, and debunking the idea that if you go to therapy, you're crazy. Well, that's, yeah. But these, these yeah. exist, these, these sort of ideas exist, and I thought it was really important, and thank you for revealing that with such honesty, because I think it's one that we all want to hear. Um, you know, there's a way that we put you on a pedestal but you constantly remind us to get our pedestal so we can be up next you. Well, and also when when
0: I, I know that people look at our relationship. Young people look hashtag relationship goals. <laughs> that's, 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 and I think that's great, but what they see in in public is the easy part. It's the fist bump with the love, it's the handhold and, and and I see young people running away from their marriage when things get hard, and it's like, oh, marriage is hard. It's hard for everyone, and I love my husband, and he's a good man, and he's not crazy, and he loves me, and it's. something
1: you're doing wrong or you should pretend isn't happening, and there you're laid out in a book in a way that all of us get to stand there next to you and know that like, we're not alone in struggling in our relationships, that's in true. the loneliness that you felt, yeah. um, um, which you know, loneliness is a part of our lives, but it's like something we think we're all supposed to run from, whether you're in a relationship or single, it is a thing that you have to learn how to navigate and be with. And for me, I had to
0: recognize that there was a problem in order for me to fix it So, if you're pretending like the problem doesn't exist, then you won't get the help that you need. And going to marriage counseling helped me really. It was a turning point for me, personally, as as an individual, let alone a turning point in our marriage. Because you know, you go to marriage counseling, I was thinking, well, we're going together, but Dr. Such and such, you're really going to fix him. (laughs) So, I'm going to sit here and explain to you. I was waiting for him to make me happy, and while our job is to make each other happy, it's still my job in my marriage to figure out what my happiness
1: is, and then to make that happen for myself, with or without it. Um, and so he made a story that I thought was really a way that you've continued to allow your daughters to see examples of the freedom of choice that they can. And that their life does not revolve around the man. Oh, yes. And even in that early space, you talked about um, the waiting up for him to come home.
0: Well, one of the solutions was we stopped waiting because... <laughs> Because I would be frustrated, and I would feel hurt from the waiting, and I would and, and, I would be, and my life would be put on hold, and I did not want my girls to grow up thinking that life only begins when dad shows up, that you have to, you don't get to eat. your story, that's part of my story. Why would I leave that out, um, if I really want you to know my story? So if that helps other people, I hope we as women um, talk to one another more. Talk when we have these challenges because nine times out of ten, you're going to find that there are millions of other people who are in the same boat, uh, and it's hard and it's lonely. And I felt that, and, and I think it's not
1: just women, men; it's all of us. And it's this, the example that you set in the book that sharing our stories um, and having being empowered by their story is actually a way to connect. Absolutely. Um, So there's a way that you show up in your speeches um, that is an amplification of what you embody. You name things that are unacceptable, um, things that are true, things that we've all been saying and feeling. Remember when she said a house built by slaves? I mean, it was so true, but so like, oh yes. naming the sexual assault in that moment during the last presidential election, you use these plain and clear words that can't skirt around or dismiss any of it from this position of power in a way that validates something. Um, and there's such a clarity to your voice in your speeches, um, the things that you say publicly. So I really have a question about how you write your speeches. Where do you get inspiration from? Are there, um, or guidance? And do you get scared before you do them, while you're writing them, after them, when you know that you've put those things out into the world publicly? You show up in such a way for our country. There's a way that you utilize your own voice to push up against things and name things that from your position is powerful. And so I wanna talk to you a little bit about how you how you come to those speeches and those words and what
0: your process is? Well, I'll, I'll take the New Hampshire speech um, after the uh, Access Hollywood tape and how that happened because it is the typical process. Um, I, w- I was scheduled, I was campaigning for Hillary and I was scheduled to do a speech in New Hampshire so the speech was already scheduled and then the videos come out and there's chatter. And we're preparing our regular stump speech. And I told my team, there's no way I can go out and and just campaign and not address this. There's just no way. That's just false. It would be tone deaf, Um, tone deaf. (laughs) So I had some time to think about so yeah, I have my, my speechwriting team, the two of us, Tyler and Sarah, you know, my heart. Anybody know Tyler and Sarah? <laughs> um, hey Tyler and Sarah. So what we usually do is we come together and we start, we have a conversation about how, how I'm th- thinking. And so we had one of those preliminary conversations. They went away, did a draft, I read it, and I was like, this isn't strong enough, this isn't what I want. So I was like, take it back, let's all sit on it, let's look at it. In, in the meantime, my mom had back surgery. She, she I, I talk about it in a book, I think I call it, I called it minor back surgery. The one edit was like, it wasn't minor, it was major. That was her one edit reading the book. I was like, okay mom, it was major back surgery. <laughs> fourth record it was major back surgery and we were having it in the medical suite at a Walter Reed so there's a presidential suite that's a whole other sidebar about life in the White House we have really good health care so she's, she's in the suite having her operation and I'm there in the waiting room and I start really thinking about this stuff. And it, some, a lot of times what I want to say does just come to me. And while i was sitting there throughout my mother's surgery, I essentially wrote that speech verbatim. Everything that I felt and I knew I wanted to say, sometimes things just become clear. And it was so clear that I got on the conference call, I called everybody, I said, get everybody on the phone. I, I know what the speech should say. And I, I, I wrote out the outline for it. Um, and they went back, did the edits, and shaped it. And, and, and I knew when I'm telling the truth, I'm not afraid. Yeah, I mean, so I was I anxious about getting it because I thought, I know how I feel. And what I knew I wanted to do at that time was to take women to that place that we know, where we know how we feel when we're demeaned. Um, we, we all have experienced that at some point in time, and a lot of people, women don't have the platform to say it out loud, but we all know that feeling. Um, in the book, I describe it as women are subjected to indignities throughout their entire lives and in the form of cuts and some of the cuts are small paper thin maybe somebody who told you you weren't good enough maybe it's somebody that made fun of your shape or your height maybe the cut was a little deeper and it was verbal abuse somebody you know um uh, you know really took you to a negative place maybe it was a cat call you know that feeling when you're walking down the street some man just feels like they can comment on on your body you know i felt that even as a young the fury i would feel in my body when a guy would just come and walk up and look me up and down it was a it was a visceral kind of how dare you that's Every time that happens, it's a cut. We don't talk about it, but it hurts. And then there's the physical abuse that some women endure and don't say a word. Those cuts are deeper. We're covered in cuts. You know? Then there's just stereotypes and oppression. We're covered in cuts. And I don't know that men really understand what we bear as women. <laughs> because in the world, the sad thing is. Necessarily safe in this world. Uh, We are at risk to being cut all the time. And I wanted to bring voice to that for women. I knew every woman knows what that feels like. You know, you're just putting up with some man's. Voice saying some stuff that is inappropriate and out of line and they think it's a joke and it has a lasting impact because even if you don't deal with it you take that home and you're mad and maybe you take it out on your kid, it's that cut you're dealing with and you're bleeding I wanted, I wanted to articulate that feeling for women because my hope was that you can feel that if women can really feel that then maybe they'll do something about it because they have the power to stop it, to vote against it. Um, And I want men to hear, I want men to be aware of it, to voice this stuff, the things you think are games, the stuff you play with, your ego, that hurts us. You know? Um, So that speech became clear and I was ready to give it. And I didn't really care yeah, it was also a second term. So I was sort of like, you know what? Well, I am done worrying about what people think. You know, it's time to put some truth out there. And the other thing I've always hated as a kid, I hated bullies. Hated bullies. Really hated the cowardice of a bully. Um, and that me came through in that speech. I wanted to name the bully and I wanted the people to be aware that this is what this is, this happens in grown up spaces too. And this is what this is. This is what this is. Um, so that's an example of, of a process. It's, you know, we talk it through, I have clear ideas about what I want to do. They go shape it, we're editing, we're going back and forth, we're editing all through the night, you know, if I have something to do, because a lot of times I think clearly in the morning, uh, unfortunately for my staff.
1: <laughs> like, is the morning for? Really
0: I. No, but when I'm thinking about something, if I have something on my mind, I can fall asleep. I fall asleep is like I'm quiet. I'm asleep. It's more like passing out. For the eight years, I didn't really fall asleep. I passed out. And I was like, whoa, it's tomorrow. Um, that's how I felt. So I th- when I was worrying I had something on my mind, I'd wake up early, and everything was clear. But then I'd start calling people and text them and it'd be like oh man it's day before a speech and she's changing everything she has all these ideas so we'd go through that and i would also always practice my speeches um we'd set up a teleprompter because i wanted to get the feedback from my staff and i knew what kind of emotion that i wanted and if, if i could generate that in a small office with my staff Um, I knew we were on the right track, Um, and sometimes how you write things and how you say things are different. Different. So if 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 it didn't feel right coming out, even though it looked good on the page, we change it again. So I am a I
1: I describe myself as a
0: box checker. I kind of got away from that a little bit, but I am that box checker. We're gonna practice it and practice it again until it is right. Because I felt like I didn't have room not to be right for eight years. I didn't have the luxury to just be okay be inarticulate to be, I couldn't make mistakes. I couldn't get facts wrong. So our team was very conscientious. We checked the facts before we put anything in a speech. Because you know, we knew want we, we got something wrong, that, that mattered to you. That, that mattered to us. Rock and I, as professional people, yeah, imagine so. so neat, That's so neat.
1: The way you hear about what you said is As we wrap up, I know you
0: guys have to go to work tomorrow. I know their babies sleep. I know people brought their kids. You all need to go home. Um,
1: this is a question I really have because we all witnessed, we saw some of it in the video packages that you were talked about. Um, And you're a person. (laughs) Uh, uh, Yeah, living, breathing. Really nice, good person. (laughs) When it hurt, (laughs) when there were ouches, who did you go to? You told us a little bit, your mom, and you go to those places. And the curiosity I have is did you ever have to show up And be that best version of yourself, even while you were hurt. Oh, every day with the people
0: who hurt me, you know. And so, can
1: you just (laughs) tell me a little bit how you navigate that? Oh my God, I mean, really. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, holiday
0: time was particularly uh, interesting time because we would do uh, photo lines. with four days, um, and for hours a day. Um, and we open up the White House, and we have um, one big uh, party before the Congress, for Congress, members of Congress. And so you'd spend the year hearing people calling your husband's names, calling you names, and then they would be in the line for a photo. <laughs> And the Rock would always be like, okay, Congressman X is coming up, get your face right. <laughs> you
2: know, but what I would think is, um, you know,
1: what,
0: what would I accomplish? You know, what, you know, and you. I always thought that maybe just showing someone uh, a high level of decency would slowly just sort of pick away at some of this stuff. You know, like I would would think that um, maybe showing up and doing your best for your country would just show some of the haters that, like, you know, you, you weren't trying to destroy the world or you weren't a terrorist not born in the country and hey, I just sort of thought that after eight years of working, even if you didn't agree with us on the policies that just are the life that we would live in, which was full of faith and value But maybe I got that wrong. And here's, you know, what I learned, and this is important for young people. Um, and I, I write about this: is um, you will change minds, and I think we changed a lot of minds. But you will always have haters. You will always. It doesn't matter what you do in my ear. You 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 don't strive to achieve 100. Perfection—it doesn't happen. Nobody's going to always agree with you, and I have to tell myself there will be people—you know—that you will never have a 100% approval rating. That doesn't happen. There will be people who are afraid of you, who just don't understand. This is where context comes in, and I have to tell myself, I have to put myself in people's positions. They don't really know us, and they only know what they're being told. I'm not even going to assume that they're bad people, I'm going to assume that they don't know. Um, so it's my job to do my best to be part of educating them and being a different kind of light in the world so that if you can't do that if you're cursing them out in the photo line. That the And that's why I talk about the hurt, because I don't want kids to think that going behind means don't recognize when, when somebody hurts you and don't let them know. It's like, no, no, I want you to know that hurt. So don't fool yourself into thinking you were just doing something else. No, you tried to hurt me, and it hurt. So you live with that. Um,
1: and it helps me sort of
0: say, I'm not crazy. That stuff was me, right? to acknowledge that. But then how do you react to it is another thing. You don't, you don't let that pull you out of who you are. Right. You, know, you don't let someone do. anger turn you into a different person. Um, and that's to me what going high is. And, and then we always think of what's the result? What, what's the end result? Do you want to just be through, it's like, what's going to make stuff better? And being mad and going low and, and throwing as much mud as they do, that just creates fight. It doesn't create solutions. So that's helpful to me in thinking, what am I trying to do and get my ego and my emotion out of it? Save that for my friends and family. And trust me, I go home Everything thing we do, like practice questions sometimes, and they let me get it out. I call it my bubble moments. It's like, you're talking to the person, they're going to ask you this, and I would say, well, I want to know what I really want to say, and I say it in the office, and then my communications director would say, okay, now that you've gotten that out, you're not going
1: to do that. Um, uh-huh. folder, <laughs> <Ass> <laughs> Right
0: Right? <laughs> I, I had career-ending thoughts. You know, things that <laughs> we were, we were like, oh, sorry, girl, I messed it up. <laughs> Come on, have up. It's over. Oh, that just up. <laughs> so i I have those moments and thinking that's not the solution.
1: So. Okay, so I thought maybe you could read as we finish. You, you reading, reading. reading your own words.
0: Think back and remember how it was that my life had forked away from the predictable control freak fantasy existence I envisioned for myself. The one with a steady salary, a house to live in forever, a routine to my days. At what point had I chosen away from that? When had I allowed the chaos inside? Had it been on the summer night when I lowered my ice cream cone and leaned in to kiss Barack for the first time? Was it the day I finally walked away from my orderly pile of documents and my partner-trapped career in law convinced i find something more fulfilling? It was possible, I knew, to live on two planes at once, to have one's feet planted in reality but pointed in the direction of progress. It was what I'd done as a kid on Euclid Avenue, what my family and marginalized people more generally had always done. You got somewhere by building that better reality. If at first only in your own mind, or as Barack had put it, you may live in the world as it is, but you can still work to create the world as it should be. I'd known the guy for only a couple of months then, but in retrospect, I see now that this was my swerve. In that moment, without saying a word, I'd signed on for a lifetime of us and a lifetime of this.